Glad you're here once again. Welcome to all of you over in the, the venue. Thank you for the team over there that um, provides leadership and leads worship and all of you that help out, the ushers, the greeters, everybody. Blessings on all of you. And once again, if you're watching on live, uh, online, we're, we're glad you're, you're with us. Hey, let me piggyback on uh, just something Pastor Bobby talked about, and that is next weekend's Friendship Weekend. And, you know, the, the only thing you can do is invite somebody. You, you don't get to control whether they'll come or they won't come. You, you don't get to control that. But certainly we can be like, you know, those folks in the New Testament when Jesus showed up. And Nathaniel says, hey, I want you to come and see Jesus. Come and see. And for us just to go to our friends and say, hey, come, see, check out our church. I know that when they see Jesus in you, wow, it's going to matter. I know that when they see Jesus in all of the music, wow, I know it's going to matter. I know that when they see Jesus as his word is proclaimed, it's going gonna, it's gonna to matter in their lives. And so reach out to somebody, and if you would like to be baptized, please get a hold of us. We've we baptized, I, I don't even know how many people out at the river this year, uh, uh, over 100 I think is what it is. And, and so we've baptized lots of people. But if you're here and you've never followed the Lord in that area of your life, you need to just get a hold of the church and we'll make sure that you're baptized here um, uh, next weekend. Um, you know, one of the things about, about Big Valley, uh, and we were kind of been thinking about this and praying about it for a long time, and uh, that is we're going to put some juice, some energy, some shekels, uh, whatever, whatever the word is, towards a, a group of people, a, a demographic in our church, those that are 18 to about 29 years old. And not that we haven't had a college age ministry or a, a career or young professionals ministry or whatever we have, but we just decided we're gonna, we're gonna pump that full of uh, steroids, if you will. And uh, some neat things are already happening. And my wife has uh, got a Bible study coming up where there's already a whole bunch of young uh, gals that have expressed an interest, have contacted her. And if you are in that age bracket, 18 to 29, you know, maybe uh, you're right out of high school and uh, maybe you're already working, maybe you're going to college, maybe you're not sure what you're going to do and you're sleeping into the crack of noon. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> some of us remember those days. Uh, or maybe, you know, you're uh, married, you're a younger married person. All you got to do is just contact my wife, and her email address is up there, and she'd love to uh, have you be a part of a, a study that's just for young gals, and so take, take advantage of that. Well, uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, we're in a series here. We're going through the book of Romans together as a family, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and uh, every week we're having what we call a not ashamed video. It's a, a little vignette, a little story of somebody in our church, and so check out the jumbo, Jumbotrons. I grew up in a Christian home in Nebraska. I knew Jesus loved me my whole entire life, but I really didn't live it out 
The term fake it till you make it was kind of my life. I was going through some uh, doubt and depression for uh, many years. I was not reading my Bible. I wasn't letting the Lord talk to me. And I definitely think that that played a huge part in how I lived my life. The depression definitely made me feel guilty and lonely and ashamed of who I was. And I was afraid to tell people that I was a Christian at school. It was within the last year that I moved out to California from Nebraska and instantly got plugged into Big Valley. And as Big Valley started this series of not being ashamed, I saw Pastor Rick continuously Week after week, he was excited about sharing who Jesus was and how he could save their lives. And that moved into people's lives in our church, and I saw the change. I was able to work in the coffee shop here and met Tara, who leads the coffee shop, and I just saw how happy and excited she was and serving all the time. That had an effect on me. I began to reevaluate what made me happy and I thought about the fact that I wasn't putting Christ first and that I was just going through the motions. A verse that definitely convicted me is Matthew 15 verses 8 and 9. These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. I wasn't living my life out the way I should be, that I should be excited and not ashamed of sharing not only my story, but more importantly, the gospel. And so I asked the Lord, please take my life. I want this to be yours and yours alone. I'm tired of being sad. I'm tired of being lonely and doubtful. And um, through that process, He has restored me with hope in ways that I couldn't have even imagined. Now, as this year that I've been here has, is wrapping up, I am moving back a whole different person. I am not the girl that moved out to California, and I'm so very thankful. Now I'm really excited to go back to Nebraska and share the love of Jesus with anybody, share um, how He's changed my life and how He can change their lives. My name is Miranda Rapley, and I am not ashamed of the gospel. Yeah. She's been a part of our intern program, just a beautiful young lady, not only on the outside, but on the inside. And, you know, one of the things that those of us that have walked with the Lord long enough can relate to is we're on this path of sanctification. Um, we're becoming more and more like Jesus. We're being transformed more and more into his image. And sometimes we, we can get stuck in the process. And uh, here was a young lady who showed up here who was stuck, if you will. And because she gets to interface with God's people, you and others, and she is confronted with God's word and our services and Bible studies, all of a sudden, you know, something reignites, if you will. And uh, I'm just really 
excited for her and what God has for her when she goes back to Nebraska, but I'm also bummed out that she won't be here anymore because she's been a blessing to our, our church. Well, this uh, past week, I, I looked up the word security in the dictionary, and it said this, quote, to be secure is to be free from and not exposed to danger, easy in mind, free from care. In other words, security is the absence of threat or the absence of fear or the absence of danger. It's a, it's a feeling that everything is okay. It's a, it's a feeling that everything is under control. And, and when you think about it, people are looking for security in just about every area of life. People are desperately seeking job security. The peace of mind that comes when you have a job that is secure, the easing of the mind that you won't end up, you know, homeless or on the street someday because you don't have a job. People long for marital security. There's an easing of the mind when you know that you're in a committed, covenantial relationship. People long for for financial security. People work real hard to stash a bunch of money away for the future because this creates a sense of peace that they'll be able to maybe retire, you know, when they're 70 or 80 years old and they, you know, won't have to work at McDonald's, uh, you know, in their golden years kind of a thing. People spend thousands of dollars on home security. It's a huge business today because people want that feeling that they're safe from any danger that might be lurking, you know, outside their home. So they put bars on their windows and alarms on their doors and they buy a big dog or whatever in hopes that their minds will be eased uh, knowing that they're secure in their home. And since September 11th, 2001, the hot topic is national security, right? We all want to know that we're safe here in America from another, you know, terrorist attack. We all remember how it felt knowing that the bad guys had somehow gotten into our country and killed a bunch of innocent people. It was a, it was a horrible moment. You all know exactly where you were at on that day. We all felt some measure of, of insecurity, if you will, as Americans. Let me give you one more. And th th this one's big. This one's huge. Spiritual or eternal security. The freedom from the anxiety of what happens after you die. The, the peace of mind that when you take your last breath here on planet Earth, that your next one, if you will, is going to be okay. That I, I know that, that I'm, I'm good, I'm golden when I, when I die. People want to be free from the fear that someday they're going to have to give an account to God for how they chose to live their life. They want the security that their sins won't be brought up and held against them. Now, people today can find a certain measure of job security by, I don't know, marrying the boss's daughter or by owning their own business or by signing a long-term contract with their employer or whatever. 
And you can find a measure of marital security by having a spouse that is devoted to you and is committed to the vows that they made to you in front of witnesses and, and, and God. And you can find some measure of financial security by saving a bunch of money and diversifying your investments or inheriting a boatload of money or, or whatever. And you can find some measure of home security by putting an alarm system on your house or bars on your window or living in a gated community. And we can all experience a measure of national security by making sure that we have a well-trained and well-equipped military and that we have somehow secured our border so that bad guys can't, you know, get into our country like those bad guys that got in and flew planes into our buildings. But when it comes to spiritual or eternal security, people are lost. In fact, people are literally scrambling to find some sort of peace of mind and they do all kinds of things and they believe all kinds of things to somehow relieve the fear and anxiety that someday they're going to have to face God. People want the, the confidence that God's not, not angry with them. They want to know when I take my last breath here, whenever that is, you know, that next one's going to be okay. Let, 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 me, let me give you an illustration. I'm going to have a rope, rope come down. We've been practicing this for, for months now. Okay, go ahead and send it down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you've come to a high quality place here if you're visiting with us. That, right, that's months and months and months of practice. Don't fall. Okay. I want you to imagine so, so, somebody's going to climb down this thing right now. Just, just, just kind of imagine that. Someone's going to climb down it. Beloved, if you knew that this rope right here had a flaw in it, if you knew that this rope right here was going to break if somebody did climb down it, the kindest, most loving thing you could do would be to go, hey, don't do it! It looks good. It looks like it might hold you. But I know something. It's got a flaw in it. It's going to break. And if you start climbing down it, you're going to end up hitting the stage and hitting the ground. And you, you, you quite possibly could lose your life. Don't do it. It may look good, it may look like it might hold somebody, but if you knew the truth, you knew it was flawed, you knew it had a cut in it, you knew that it really wasn't secure, the kindest thing you could do would be to stand up and say, don't do it. In fact, it would be evil of you if you knew that this rope couldn't hold somebody and you didn't say something. Wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be an evil thing, a wicked thing, if you knew that this rope really didn't provide any security at all and he didn't say anything and the person starts climbing down it and you knew, you knew the truth. I think this is what 
Paul had in mind when he penned the first three chapters of Romans. He's worried that people are, are, are trusting in the wrong things as it related to their eternal security. So out of his great love and kindness, he shares the truth with them. The truth that the rope that they were hanging on to to give them peace of mind about what happens when they died. And hey, it may look good, it may make you feel good, but the reality is the rope you're hanging on to is ultimately going to do you in. There is no security in it. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He gives us a, a pretty vivid illustration of what I'm talking about here. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, that day when they're facing the Lord, they've taken their last breath here on planet Earth. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name, didn't we drive out demons and before many miracles? Lord, I, I sang in the choir. Lord, I played in the orchestra. Lord, I mentored kids in our children's ministries. Lord, I, I did a lot of really great things, God. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, just based upon this passage right here, it's possible for a person to have a false sense of spiritual security. Obviously, these people thought that they, they, they had a hold of something secure. <laughs> but praise God, Jesus says, hey, 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 wait, 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 you need to understand something. You better make sure you got the right rope. You better make sure you're hanging on to the right thing. Because it's quite possible the thing that you're trusting in as it relates to your spiritual security just may not be uh, the right thing. Now in Romans chapters one through three, Paul warns people. He warns different groups of people that God's judgment is going to come. And he says this, this was the first group that he points out. Paul warns that judgment is coming to those that have put their eternal security in a belief that there is no God. This is the rope that this first group is hanging on to. Some of you might be asking yourself, hey pastor, how, how does denying the existence of God give someone the peace of mind about their Eternal security. Well, if you can convince yourself that there is no God, that somehow we as hu humans have simply evolved from monkeys, then you don't have to worry about facing God. You don't have to worry about some sort of impending judgment. And this will give you a sense of, of security. Hey, there is no God. I don't have to worry about it. I'm good. 
I'm golden. Beloved, within the the soul of every person is a God-given knowledge of what's right and wrong. It's a part of your DNA. It's called your conscience. I told you last week that I know a lot of unbelievers who are honest businessmen. They're faithful to their spouse. They love their children. They, they honor you know, their parents. They understand that lying is wrong. They're generous to those in need, and they care about people, you know, people deeply. And you know why they do all these things? Because somewhere within their souls, they know they're supposed to do them. They know it. People know that murder is wrong, stealing is wrong, adultery is wrong, lying is wrong, selling drugs is wrong. And the reason why they know those things are wrong is because it's been written upon their hearts. Their conduct proves They know what is right and what is wrong. Their conduct proves that somewhere within the souls, their their souls, God's laws have been written. This is why whenever a person does something that's wrong or they think about something that's wrong, it triggers within them a sense of guilt. You see, the message of the Bible is, is that we're all evil. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, obviously, some people are more evil than others. And it's your conscience that keeps you from being more evil than you could be. Let me tell you, I've had a few people in my life since I've been a believer since I've been the pastor, who, uh, frankly, I've thought about just taking out and calling up somebody from the Gambino family, and can you take him out and bury him somewhere, you know, and, and I'll be fine with that. I mean, haven't you just had those thoughts with somebody? Anybody ever cut you off on the freeway? And you just wanted to ram the back of them. But you didn't do it. Because of your conscience. Forget whether you're a believer or not. You you just knew it was wrong. And so your conscience kept you from being as evil as you could be. And God is the one who has given us a conscience. And here's the, the scary part for an unbeliever. Here's the thing that brings insecurity into their lives. They know somewhere within their soul that they're going to be judged according to their conscience. They know it. And this frightens them. So they got to deal with this horrible insecurity somehow. And one of the ways that people deal with it is by simply denying the existence of God. Paul talks about that. They, they suppress the truth. I said, no, there's, no, we came from two molecules. No, I got a circulatory system because of molecules. I, I, I got an eyeball because of molecules. And I'll, just, I'll just work so hard to just suppress that truth. 
And then they get to the point where they not only suppress it, they just reject it, and then they finally get to this moment where they just replace the truth about, the, the, uh, about God, and they come up with, you know, evolution or whatever it all is. <sighs> okay, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not going to have to face God because there is no God. And by the way, these people don't even usually like to talk about God because if you talk about God, you know what it does? It just makes them nervous. Talking about God only makes them think about the fact that someday they're going to have to face him. Now, if you do happen to get onto the subject of God, what's the one thing they love to talk about? Okay, if there is a God, God is a God of love. Just talk about that. Just talk about love. Because he's a God of love, isn't he? Didn't the Bible say that, right? So he's a God of love, and so they've got a hold of that. That's the only thing they want to talk about. And when you talk about the first three chapters of, 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 of Romans, they get upset and they email me. Well, you're talking about all that judgment stuff. Just get to love, will you? Well, I want to make sure you're not hanging on to the wrong rope. I care about you that much. I love you that much. God loved you that much. He is a God of love. He loved you so much that he sent a book that has a whole lot of stuff in it other than the fact that God is love, and he is love. But if you finally get it, you know, somebody who's an unbeliever to finally talk about God, they just want to talk about, you know, his love and how loving he is, and he's so loving, he would never send anybody to hell or anything like that. I mean, come on, you got to be kidding me. Come on, let's get, get there. We're going to get there. We'll get there. Number two, or the second group that Paul warns is, is this. Paul warns that judgment is coming to those that have put their spiritual or their eternal security in the fact that they live moral lives. I'm a good person. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good employee. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. I'm not Ted Bundy. I haven't murdered anybody, but I've been faithful to my wife. And that's what they're grabbing a hold of. They're good people. They're moral people. They've grabbed on to the rope of good works, in other words. That these are people who are looking for their eternal security and the fact that God would never judge them because they're basically good. And without a doubt, they're better than Ted Bundy. Got it. I mean, in their minds, they're not evil, they're not wicked. They've bought in the lie that, you know what, we're all, we're all, aren't we just good? I mean, I see good in people. I know, like I said, I know a lot of unbelievers who frankly live better moral lives than believers I know. These are people who try to experience uh, spiritual security by, by building up a false sense of themselves. They think very highly of themselves. God would never judge me. 
Look how good I am. That's in essence what they're saying. And in Paul's great love for these people, he sends them a warning that all your good works won't save you from the judgment that's going to come. In fact, the great prophet Isaiah said this in chapter 64. He said, we are all infected and impure with sin. We're all infected with sin. You're not Ted Bundy, I get it. You're not Hitler, I get it. But make no mistake about it, you got an infection. Sin. And then he makes this statement. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. And that word filthy rags there is pretty, pretty weighty. He's talking about a menstrual pad. The blood that comes from a woman when she's in her period. Yeah. And that's what God says about all your righteous things you do. That's what it means to him. Isn't that weighty? Isn't that a weighty, weighty thought for all of us? I mean, just to kind of think that through for a, a, a moment. Paul loves you so much. God loves you so much. This church loves you so much that we're going to tell you the truth. And it may be hard. I just don't want you hanging on to the wrong rope when you take your last breath. Now, the third group is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. Paul warns that judgment is coming to those that have put their eternal security in the fact that they're religious. This is the rope they're hanging on to. And by the way, this is the hardest people to reach. These are the people who have put their trust in spiritual things. These are people who look to religious things to give them the peace of mind that God would never judge them. And Paul gives us a, a number of ropes in this little passage we're going to look at that people grab on to. That, you know, wow, this is it. Whew. I'm golden when I die. You know, I know when I take my last breath, I'm, I'm good. And so let's just read our, our text. I'm not going to look at every single verse in here, but I, I am going to point out a few things. Look at Romans chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in verse 17. If you don't have a Bible, they're going to come up on the jumbotrons. I think they might be in your program. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Just go into the altar room here or over in the, in the venue. We have an altar room or stop by the church uh, Monday, and we'd love to put a copy of God's word in your hand. Verse 17 says, you who call yourselves Jews, and so obviously he's talking to the Jewish people here, Jews that were in the church at Rome, are relying on God's law. And you boast about your special relationship with him, with God. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you've been taught his law. You, you got the Old Testament. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, 
but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scripture says the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. This is brutal. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but you don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from people. So, I'm going to give you a few ropes that religious people tend to hang on to uh, to try to give them some sort of peace of mind that when they take their last breath, they're, they're, they're good. Okay. Number one, people put their trust in titles or labels to give them a sense of eternal security. In verse 17, uh, Paul says, you who call yourselves Jews. There's a title, it's a, it's a label. The Jews took great pride in the fact that they were Jews. They took great pride in the fact that they were God's chosen people. And because of these things, they thought that this was an instant passport, if you will, to heaven. This was the rope that they were hanging on to. Hey, I'm a Jew. I'm good. We're God's chosen people. I'm good. When I take my last breath, I'm in. Got my ticket. I mean, after all, you know, God spoke through Jewish people. God gave the Jews the law. We got it. We're golden. Didn't matter how they lived or Whatever, all that mattered was they were Jews and therefore God somehow owed them heaven. If you would have asked a Jew back then, are you and God okay? They would have said, absolutely, after all, I'm a Jew. Now most of you are thinking, how crazy were the Jewish people to believe this, right? But it happens to us Gentiles also. I can't tell you how many people I've asked, are you a Christian? And they immediately answer, with some sort of title or label. Absolutely, I'm a fundamentalist. I'm a dispensationalist. I'm a charismatic. I'm a full gospel, you know. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a, I'm a Methodist. I'm a Catholic. I go to Big Valley. That's what they're hanging on to. They're hanging on to a title. They're hanging on to a membership. as if these titles you know, make you a Christian. I've actually had people tell me that they were Christians because they were Americans. Whenever I meet new couples in my office, I always ask them, tell me about your journey of faith. Do you know Christ as your savior kind of a thing? And the logic kind of goes like this. America is a Christian nation, and I was born in America, which makes me an American, therefore I must be a Christian. 
Listen to me. You could have had Christian parents. You could have been born in a Christian hospital and had Christian doctors, you know, deliver you. All your nurses could have been Christians. You, you, you could have only eaten Christian food and only drank milk from a, you know, Christian cow. You, you could have gone to a Christian school and attended a Christian college. You could have married a Christian spouse and attended a great Christian church. And you could still be lost in your sin. Just because you're a member of the Lions Club doesn't make you a lion, does it? Maybe it does. I, you know, I don't think it does. Friends, titles or labels don't make you right with God. I don't care how much peace you have about your label, it doesn't make you right with God. It's a rope that is going to snap. Could you imagine? I mean, just, you're standing there before God. I don't know, maybe the, the Trinity's there. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And you've been hanging on to the rope of you're a Methodist, or you're a member here at Big Valley Grace, or you're a Catholic. And now you're standing before God, and you say, hey, God, I'm a Catholic. I'm a, I was a member at Big Valley Grace, so let me in. And could you imagine God said, oh, oh, you're a member of Big Valley? Sure, go on in. And there's standing Jesus, who was beaten to a bloody pulp, had a crown of thorns jammed on his head, he had nails rammed in his hands and feet, could you imagine what he might say to the father? Hey, remember, father, when I was in the garden of Gethsemane and I asked, hey, is there any way we can do this redemption thing a little differently? And you said no. But you just let that guy in because he's a Catholic or because he's a member of Big Valley Grace? What was the point of what all that I went through? So he's a Methodist. So is a Presbyterian. If that's all it took, Father, what, why do I still have these holes in my hand? Obviously, that conversation's not going to happen. Number two, the second thing Paul brings out is people put their trust in knowledge to give them a sense of eternal security. Once again, verse 17 says, you who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with him. Now, I believe that Paul is talking about the first five books of the, the, the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I think that's what he's referring to here. Uh, they were common, it's commonly called the, the, the Pentateuch. These are the, the books that were written by Moses. The Jews called these five books the Torah. This is the, the law that the Jews were relying on. Now, beloved, the fact is the law never saved anybody because nobody could keep it perfectly. Nobody in the book of Galatians clearly teaches us uh, this truth. The, the reason God gave us the law was to simply show us that we were sinners and that we were in need 
of a savior. That, that's why God gave us the law. We, we could not keep it perfectly. Could we keep some of it? Absolutely. But we could not keep it perfectly. 100% of the time. And so it was given so that, yes, we would know that we're sinful. In fact, um, if, if the government doesn't put a sign out here on Tully Road that says you can only do 35 miles an hour, how do we know that we're breaking the law? We need the sign up to tell us, hey, here's the speed limit. So now we know, or a guy like me, knows I'm breaking it. Okay? My insurance man's right down here and he'd tell me your rates would be a whole lot lower every month if I would just keep the law. <laughs> I had to bring that up again. But here's the deal. Some of the rabbis began to teach that all you needed to do was simply know the law, that knowing the law was good enough. And you know why they began to teach that? Because nobody can keep it. So uh, we can't keep it. So, hey, if you just know it, you're good. Do you know it? Yeah, we, we, we know it. Oh, then you're good. Well, guess what? There were people who, they couldn't even know it. And so the rabbis came along and said, well, you don't need to do it, and you don't need to know it. You just need to have a copy of it on your coffee table. As long as you just have it, you're good. These were the rabbis teaching this. They knew, <laughs> they knew they weren't keeping the law. They knew. And so what they're doing is just dumbing the down, they're bringing the bar down, they're dumbing it all down and that's the rope they're hanging on to. I'm Jewish, <laughs> I got the law, man. We're your chosen people, we're good. But it's the same today. People read the Bible, and they study the Bible, they memorize the Bible, they meditate on the Bible. People teach the Bible, and all these are good things, but I want you to know, none of them will make you right with God. None of them. When I was at the JC decades and decades ago, I had a class from a gal, a professor, who uh, taught the Bible as literature. She didn't know the Lord from Howard Hughes. She just took the Psalms and talked about the poetry of the Psalms and the structure of the Psalms. And she knew the Psalms probably better than anybody in this room, but she wasn't saved just because she knew the Bible. Now, it's a good thing to read the Bible and study the Bible and all those things. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing for us to do, but don't think that just because I read the Bible and I know the Bible and I memorized, you know, five verses, I'm good. That rope will snap on you. Jesus said this in John chapter five and he's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to all those people that knew the Old Testament law. He says this, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. You think that simply because you study the Bible, read the Bible, and know the Bible, you're golden. And Jesus says, no, these are the scriptures that testify about me. The 
reason why we read the Bible, study the Bible, meditate on the Bible, all those things, is because it, it helps us know the one in whom saves us. It's all about Jesus, you see. The gospel's about Jesus. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. The New Testament's all about Jesus. The Bible's about Jesus. And you can study the Bible like the, the Jewish rabbis would, the Pharisees, and miss Jesus in it all. I've actually had people tell me that they were Christians because they owned a Bible. People even brag about the translation they have. Remember, uh, I remember these two guys were in my office and, and I said, hey, you know, I didn't know them. I said, just tell me about your journey of faith. Are you guys believers? And one of the guys says, well, of course I'm a Christian. I, I use the King James Version of the Bible. <laughs> that, that's the distinguishing mark? Friends, you have to do more than just own a Bible. In Luke chapter 11, it says as Jesus was saying these things, he's talking to a group of people. Somebody in the crowd, a woman in the crowd yelled out, blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. Wow! What a special woman she must be to give birth to you. You, you know, fed him from your breasts. Wow. And Jesus replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God. And not just hear it, but they hear it to the degree that they believe it and they live it out in their life. And what is the word of God all about? Jesus. It's that. Hey, no doubt it was a huge blessing to be Mary, right? Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying or even what Jesus is saying. But that's not, the, that's not the golden ticket. Mary was a sinful person also. She needed the Savior also. Just because Jesus grew in her womb, that is not a rope to hang on. And last but not least, number three, people put their trust in rituals to give them a sense of eternal security. In verses 25 through 29, Paul, as I said earlier, just, just says some brutal things to the Jews about circumcision. And um, this practice had literally become a ritual or an end to itself, and Paul makes the argument that circumcision is simply an outward symbol. There's nothing wrong with it, but what matters is, is what's happening within a person's heart. That's what matters. Originally, circumcision was, was meant to be an expression of faith. It symbolized a commitment to God. It was like wearing a, a wedding ring. My, my, my wedding ring is a reminder of a vow that I made to a woman. It's a reminder of the fact that I made a vow before witnesses and most importantly, before, before God. It says that I belong to one woman. I've made a commitment to uh, one woman. That's what that ring says. I'm not married to the ring. 
All this ring does is communicate to anybody who happens to see it. That guy made a commitment to somebody, a woman. It represents a vow I made to, to Aaron, to God, but the ring is only worth as much as the vow behind it. In other words, the ring is worthless and useless without the commitment behind it, you see? Circumcision was the symbol of the Jews' commitment to God. It was started by Abraham back in the Old Testament, but, but somehow the, the Jews had become to believe that the commitment didn't matter anymore. What mattered was the ritual. All we have to do is, you know, be circumcised and, woo, we're good. Didn't matter whether you believed in God or not. Didn't matter whether you were obeying God. It didn't, none of that mattered. I, I just, I, I got the symbol. Look, <laughs> my wife doesn't really care about this ring. What she cares about is the commitment I made to her. Take the ring off. Just stay committed to me. Because you can have the ring on and not be committed. And we all know people who have had the ring on, but they didn't have the commitment. We all want the commitment, don't we? That's what matters. And that's what matters to God. Hey, nothing wrong with the ring, nothing wrong with being circumcised, but what matters is the commitment. That's what matters. When we're baptizing people, that doesn't save anybody. But we ask people, is it true that you have repented of your sin? Yes. Is it true that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Yes. Now we'll baptize you and they go under the water as if they're dying to their old self and they come up out of the water to new life. They're now a part of God's family. They're now a part of the church. They're now a part of this great followers of people. But if we ever ask somebody, hey, listen, have you repented of your sin? No. We're not baptizing you. What good does that do? Get out of the tank. It didn't mean anything. It'd be like marrying somebody and the preacher went, hey, do you commit yourself to love this gal, you know, with all your heart? No. But give me the ring. That'd be weird. And that's what was happening to many of the Jews. They were being circumcised, but this hadn't changed. And this is what matters. It's not what you do outwardly that secures your relationship with God. It's what you do inwardly that secures your relationship with God. That's what Paul's trying to say. Now here's where this becomes practical for us today. You can substitute any word you want for the word circumcision and get the same idea. Today, people trust in all kinds of rituals, baptism, taking Holy Communion, becoming a member of a church, confirmation, I spoke in tongues, I don't know what it is. Those are all fine, but those don't save you. Baptism, God wants you to be baptized, it doesn't save you. 
Nothing wrong with taking communion, but that doesn't save you. When I was a kid, I used to go to different churches and I would have communion. I didn't know Christ from Howard Hughes. In fact, I can remember trying to do a little survey who had better you know, juice and bread. Was it First Baptist or Manesso Covenant? Because I didn't care. It didn't mean anything to me. So what makes you a child of God? What, what makes you a Christian? How, how are you saved? Once again, it's not about having the right label. I'm a Baptist, a Methodist, Assembly of God, or whatever. And it's not about keeping a bunch of rules and regulations, working hard to somehow earn God's favor. And it's not about performing a bunch of rituals, being baptized or taking the Lord's Supper or whatever. All those things are external. They're good. Nothing wrong with them, but they're external. So what makes you a child of God? What makes you a Christian? How is a person saved? What's, what's the rope that you need to be hanging on to? Well, I'll end with this, okay? In John chapter one, the word of God says this. He, that's Jesus, came to that which was his own. He came to the Jewish people. He was born in the town of uh, Bethlehem. He came to the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. And that doesn't mean that everybody didn't receive him. Obviously, the disciples were all Jewish, and there were, the first believers were all Jewish people. He's just saying in general, in general, the Jewish people rejected him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave those people the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will. In other words, it's not a, you don't become a part of God's family because a husband and a wife decide to make love and they have a baby. Hey, let's have children. That's not how you get into God's kingdom. That's just how you get into the world physically. But he says right here, but born of God. The rope you gotta be hanging on to is the rope that you've recognized that your sin has separated you from God. And that there isn't anything that can cleanse you of your sin. And you simply cry out, you just humble yourself before God and say, God, I got nothing. I got nothing. There isn't anything I can do to save myself. I got nothing, God. But I know who you are. And you loved me and sent your son Jesus for me. And I'm surrendered my life to that, that God. I'm giving my life to Jesus. He, he's the king and I'm but your subject, God. I'm it. Take my life. I surrender my life to you. That's the rope you hang on to. Now, the beautiful thing about it, and I couldn't figure out how to do it here, is you know what? You don't even have to hang on. God just kind of comes and he wraps around the thing and he's, he's, he just holds you, he's got you. He's got you in the palm of his hand when you just stay surrendered to him. Are you gonna live it all perfectly? No. You gonna blow it and make mistakes? Yeah, things haven't changed since the beginning of time. The Jews couldn't keep the Old Testament laws. It was a sign to them. <laughs> you need the Messiah. Are we gonna live it all out perfectly? No, we're not. 
But because we understand how flawed and sinful we are, oh God, I need you. I just need you. I want to stay close to you, God. Help me, God, to become more like you. Help me in this sanctification process to be more and more transformed in the image of your son. Please, God, help me. That's the, the rope you, 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 you hang on to. And it could be that some of you are here today, and you know what? God has opened your eyes to the truth. And you can keep hanging on to the wrong rope, or you can say, you know what, I'm done with that rope. I get it. And I need to repent of my sin. I grab a hold of the rope of the God who loves me deeply. And you could go into the altar room. There's one over in the, in the uh, venue. And our pastors, our elders, the spiritual leaders of our church are there. And they'd, they'd love to pray with you. Every, every person you'll meet in there had the wrong rope at some moment of their life. That's how we all begin life. We got the wrong rope. And there comes a moment when all of us are drawn by God to the truth of the accurate rope, Christ. And our leaders would love to pray with you. And you could walk out of here a different person. You could walk out of here with um, the security, the eternal spiritual security that when you take your last breath, you'll be okay when you, when you meet the Lord. Why don't you stand up over in the venue? Why don't you stand and let me pray for us, okay? Father, uh, thank you, God, for uh, this weekend. And man, I sure loved last night and the people, the worship. The, it was just great. I love today, Lord. Thank you for the choir and the orchestra and all of those that serve. And, 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 and there's just 100 people plus that are just serving in our children's ministries all over, Lord. Thank you for the ushers and the greeters and those that are in Cafe Astoria. Lord, what a great place, your, your church here at Big Valley Grace. I'm grateful for those that are here that are new. I hope they feel welcome here. And I pray for those, Lord, where you were working in their life. Something was going on in their life. They sensed something happening. God, may they not run out of here. May they take some time going to the altar room and maybe let some spiritual leaders tease out whatever it is you're doing in their life, God. Thanks for being such a great and awesome and loving God. And I pray this in your name and all the God's people said, amen. amen. Lord bless you, live for Jesus.